You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, May the 4th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News provides a rundown of the local primary results in today's headlines. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have your weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware, hosted and produced by Richard Fish. More following today's feature. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your Environmental News Briefing. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources has recently proposed adding a new species to the state's endangered species list. The prairie terachidia, which is also known as the prairie bird dropping moth, has the distinctive coloring of its namesake bird droppings. The moth is an important species because it is a great indicator of the health of Indiana's habitats as the moth is extremely vital to the food web. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources has currently listed over 150 species as endangered in the state and plans to add a few more. Ideally, species are delisted once they recover in their natural habitat. The Department of Natural Resources hopes that by adding the moth to the endangered species list, more awareness will be raised and the species could be saved. This year, the organizers of the Indianapolis 500 have decided to not release balloons during this year's race. This is the third year in a row without the balloon launch, but the prior reasons were all COVID-19 related. The explanation of this decision for this May is due to the environmental and wildlife impacts that the balloons have. The balloons are known to travel very far, with some ending up in Ohio, and most of them making their way into the ecosystem, which can have negative impacts for wildlife. Some species, such as turtles, are known to eat balloons, which can lead to suffocation or starvation. Experts have done tests on the balloons launched in the past and have found them to only degrade after four years. Environmental groups have praised this move by the Indy 500 as it helps lower the environmental footprint of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. After almost a year of weekly airings, this is my last environmental news briefing. Once I graduate, I'm moving back to my hometown, leaving Bloomington and my WFHB family behind. Thank you so much for listening to these weekly briefings, and I hope they have allowed you to stay informed and knowledgeable about the environment here in Bloomington, in Indiana, and throughout the world. At the current moment, there are plans to continue the segment with a fellow environmental correspondent stepping up to take the mantle. But for now, thanks again. For one last time, 
that's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. On April 26th at the Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners meeting, Director of Parks and Recreation Paula McDevitt asked the board to approve a suspension appeal of a park visitor. City Attorney Mike Roker gave the commissioners background information on their ability to issue a temporary park suspension and explained why one has been submitted for resident Matthew Mulligan. From time to time when a member of the park, uh, excuse me, when a member of the public violates parks rules, the parks director issues an order temporarily suspending the violator from using any parks facilities. This is called a temporary park suspension and these suspensions are issued in accordance with rules promulgated by this board. Unfortunately, the director of the parks department, Director McDevitt, had to issue a temporary suspension earlier this month to Matthew Mulligan following incidents at the Ferguson Dog Park. In your packet, you'll find, uh, you'll find relevant information, including an incident report, as she mentioned, a sworn affidavit from Clark Delisle, one of Mr. Mulligan's targets, uh, and um, so you'll find that information. Uh, Mr. Delisle, along with Detective Rob Schrake from the Bloomington Police Department, are present virtually today in the event the board has questions for them following the presentation by each of the parties here. Um, Detective Rob Schrake was the, uh, was the detective who investigated the incidents. Mr. Delisle's affidavit describes the incidents that gave rise to the suspension order issued by Director McDevitt. First, on March 21st, 2022, as Mr. Delisle was exiting the dog park and getting his dog to his vehicle, his dog was loose and began running up and down the park fence op opposite Mr. Mulligan's dogs. Mr. Mulligan accosted Mr. Delisle and verbally berated him while his dogs were running. Mr. Gul Mulligan filmed Mr. Delisle and took down Mr. Delisle's license plate number and followed Mr. Delisle into the parking lot yelling at him. While this incident must have been jarring, Mr. Delisle did not contact law enforcement on March 21st. However, just a couple of weeks later, when Mr. Delisle again visited the dog park, Mr. Mulligan showed up. On April 6th, 2022, as Mr. Delisle was trying to leave the dog park, Mr. Mulligan pulled his vehicle up behind Mr. Delisle and physically blocked him from exiting. As before, Mr. Mulligan used loud, threatening language towards Mr. Delisle. This harassment, particularly combined with a previous incident, was concerning enough that Mr. Delisle contacted law enforcement and an investigation was initiated by Detective Shrake. The very same day, on April 6th, Director McDevitt issued an order suspending Mr. Mulligan from all parks facilities for 90 days. Matthew Mulligan spoke in his defense against the suspension. On 322, I was accused of verbally berating a gentleman whose dog was loose outside the fence and running up and down the fence. My dogs loved it. His dog was out of control. And I simply said to him, this is why we leash our dogs in and out of the fence. Parks utilized by so many different people, so many different levels of dog training. I always keep my dogs leashed to and from the park. And here was a situation where this dog was wild and, and, and did run the full length of the fence, untethered, and I made a mention of it, and he took exception to it. And I told him that his dog was out of control, simply, obviously. Board member Jim Whitlock 
asked Mulligan if he was at the park that day, and if he did in fact pull in front of Delilah's car, intending to block his vehicle from exiting the park parking lot. Mulligan said he did not do that. And I did not do this, and I appeal for my dogs because it's so unfair that they're not able to go to dog park. We can go at a different time. We can go alternate days, but uh, the, the animals enjoy the park so much. I've been a responsible park patron. I pick up my poop. The lady that I said, hey, you wouldn't have such a fat ass if you went after your dog and picked up your poop. Well, I apologize to her. But sitting there reading a book while your dog poop, I don't think, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of a person who thinks, I mean, I walk in the park, the first thing I do is I walk to the end of the park because I know right where my dog's gonna go. And I just feel like all of us need to contribute to our park. City Attorney Roker and Councilmember Whitlock asked Clark Delilah a series of questions about his encounters with Mulligan. Clark, I just want to ask you really quickly, on April 6th, uh, 2022, as mentioned in your sworn statement, were you at the Ferguson Dog Park? Yeah, I was. Did you see Mr. Mulligan at the park on April 6th, 2022? Yes, I did. Did he physically block your vehicle from exiting the dog park on April 6th, 2022? He pulled in and parked behind my girlfriend's car, yes. That's all I have. Did he complain about out-of-state licenses during that encounter? Yes, he did. And that was, there's no doubt in your mind that that was him on that date? I see the same man in the same car every morning. I really don't have any doubt. And did he get out of the car or did he stay in the car? On that occasion, no. He pulled in, we were, we were heading to leave and he rolled his window down and said something about our out-of-state plates and that he had a friend that was a police officer that was going to come somehow punish us for having an out-of-state plate and then he sped off. But he didn't, he didn't exit the vehicle, no. The board unanimous, unanimously approved the suspension of Mulligan from city parks for 90 days. The board will have a special meeting to approve the 2021 annual report draft on May 9th. Indiana held its primary election on Tuesday. In today's edition of the local news, WFHB will give you a rundown of the results for races of local issues. There were some contested countywide races on behalf of the Democrats. However, all GOP candidates for county offices ran unopposed. Rube Marty won the Democratic nomination of Monroe County Sheriff out of a pool of five candidates. Marty acquired 48.1% of the vote, earning a total of 4,255 total votes. Marty worked for the Indiana State Police for about three decades. He will face off against Nathaniel Williamson, who ran unopposed on the Republican ticket. Williamson has worked as a deputy sheriff in the county for over a decade. Emily Salzman won the Democratic nomination for Monroe County Circuit 7 judge earning nearly 35% of the vote out of four candidates. Salzman will run against Carl Lamb, the only GOP candidate for the circuit court race. Lee Jones won the Democratic nomination for Monroe County Commissioner District 1, garnering 61% of the vote. Jones, the incumbent, will run against Perry Robinson, the sole Republican challenger, in the race. In a tightly contested vote, 
Democrat Amy Swain won by a total of 40 votes over Ashley Craner in the Monroe County Recorder's race. Swain will run against Republican Paul White in the general election. WFHB News will continue to announce results for statewide races during tomorrow's edition of the local news. Up next, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. We turn now to that segment. Strike Mike. On Sunday, April 10th, a 97.8 affirmative vote by IU graduate workers set into motion the largest indefinite strike Bloomington has seen in decades. Every day that we can, WFHB's Strike Mike will bring you to the front lines of this movement, allowing you to understand the issues and the action through the voices of the participants themselves. In the late afternoon of Saturday, April 30th, a dozen members of the Indiana Grad Workers Coalition picketed a major donors' dinner at the IU Auditorium. They were joined by several community supporters, including a union steamfitter and a member of the Monroe County Education Association. The dinner celebrates IU donors who contribute at the $1, 5 and $10 million levels. Today, we're sharing audio from the demonstration which was aimed at reaching donors and letting them know that their contributions are not reaching IU classrooms via instructor's wages. Union power! Show me what a union looks like! This is what a union looks like! Show me what a union looks like! This is what a union looks like! Who runs IU? We run IU! Who's got the power? We've got the power! What kind of power? Union power! What do we want? A union! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? A union! When do we want it? Now! All right, we've got some more facts about oh, graduate workers' stipends at IU. Low graduate worker stipends at IU are currently risking IU's R1 status. Yeah. Low stipends reduce departments' inability to recruit high-quality graduate students which in turn reduces our ability to recruit and retain high-quality faculty. To... We want to provide the best education possible to our undergraduates. Many IU faculty members, according to their own 2019 report, know students who are selling plasma and other biofluids to support themselves. Low stipends place students at grave financial risk. Graduate stipends at IU fall below those of most of our Big Ten competitors and IU's estimates of cost of living. Graduate worker stipends at IU sit close to the poverty line, if not below it. The value, here are a couple of facts about some of our departments at IU. The Jacobs School of Music is one of the top rated music programs in the nation and yet students there make an average of $10,000. Yeah. 
Those graduate workers, instructors, are charged $2,000 or more in annual mandatory fees. One Jacob student shared, last semester I had four days of panic attacks regarding the fees. Since 2019, and even before that, uh, IU has raised billions of dollars. They have increased tuition. They have raised enrollments. But the pay to the educators in the classroom have not gone up. Money that IU is bringing in is only going to top administrators, and we believe it's time that that changes. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Ashley Ewald, writer and advocate, who talks about how Generation Z hopes to tackle the issue of our time. We turn to Zero Rose for part two of an ongoing interview series. Good quite a resume already for being 19. Um, I know you've worked with a lot of organizations, uh, spoken at some events. What are the uh, organizations that you're working with at present? One of them is Vox ATL, correct? I got involved with Vox ATL in my junior year when I had pitched my immigration kind of story, kind of poem, kind of thing, talking about what immigration means to me and the importance of diversity and how immigration laws have some policymakers purposely make it harder for people to become citizens or legal residents. And so I wrote that about my story, kind of. And so then like a whole senior year passed by. And then my freshman year, the summer before my freshman year, I applied to become for an internship with Box ATL as a staff writer. And here I would write about stories that I hopefully can positively influence the public about current issues, whether that might be what's going on in our current society, whether that might be about holding other politicians accountable. And so that's an organization I got I got into from when I was 17, but then actually started writing for them at my freshman year of college, which is now. And then the other organization that I got involved with is the AAGC. So the Asian American Advancing Justice Program is something I got involved with, but I kind of am taking a break from that. So I can try to do that next year instead of like juggling two, two jobs at once. You know, I didn't want to spread myself too thin. But that's when I would help get people registered to vote. And it's a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. And so is Vox ATL. So therefore, I would just help people get registered to vote and stuff like that. And then another organization I'm also part of, it's just like local organizations for my school, for my college, to help better, better improve student concerns and student life on college campus. And uh, the podcast that you've started, is that your own thing or is that part of an organization? In my high school, I had 
my high school senior year and then junior year two, halfway through my junior year, the COVID pandemic broke out. But it broke out in 2020. And so, therefore, I realized how, like, we had to do everything virtually. And we had to do SGA virtually. So I kind of realized the importance of community. And even though, like, we're not physically on campus, the ability to keep everyone enacted together and united was I thought was a way with podcasts where I could feature students who are making a big difference in high school and are creating their own organizations and have them share their journey. So listeners or mainly students, teachers and staff, and sometimes parents can learn about people's stories and hopefully that will empower the listeners to share theirs and use their experiences to basically use their experiences as their strengths. And so as I got into college, I started featuring more influencers, you know, filmmakers, singers, uh, journalists that are published and are verified. And it's just, it's very interesting because I hope that no matter if you're a student, you know, not in college or just young in general, like it's never too late. It's never too early to start working towards your dreams and to keep going. And it's better just to try to do it now so you don't have to worry about it in the future. Up next, butchering pigs for fun and proficient on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn now to Richard Fish. Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. As you probably know, there are really only a few basic kinds of con games, but a huge number of variations on each one. And now we've got a great example of that, a new scam that's really just a twist on the old reliable one. The old one is really old, and it's called the romance scam. The con artist plays a long game, establishing a relationship with the victim without ever meeting in person. For centuries, it was done by writing letters, and more recently, it's been worked by telephone and these days on the Internet. It takes time, because the swindler needs to convince the victim that she or he has fallen in love with him or her, or whatever pronouns are appropriate. After a while, the swindler asks the victim for help, meaning money. It can be small amounts at first, continuing and building up over time, or perhaps the scam involves some emergency where the swindler needs a lot of money. After having built up trust and preyed on the victim's loneliness and personal susceptibilities, all too often the victim sends the money and never hears from the scammer again. I think the modern term is ghosting. This scam is not nearly as widespread as some others, but it usually involves much greater losses, over $500 million last year alone. Now, the con artists have a variation which can greatly increase the amount of money they steal, and it's called, are you ready for this, the pig butchering scam. 
doesn't sound very romantic, but the name apparently comes from the practice of fattening a pig before turning it into hot dogs and chitlins. The new angle, the flashy coat of paint and chrome plating on the old romance scam, is cryptocurrency. The swindler is doing the same kind of romancing and building up a personal, trusting relationship, but also talks about how much money they're making, investing in Bitcoin or some other kind of cyber bucks, and there are thousands of them now, an offer to help my dear friend inveigles the victim into investing in this little gold mine. The victim sends money. The crook tells them they're making fantastic profits and asks for even more money. This goes on until the victim asks to see some of those profits. That's when the pig gets butchered, when the fraudster disappears. A software engineer in Denver, not a stupid person, got taken for 1,600,000 smackers. Other victims have lost thousands. The lesson is simple enough. Do not invest money on the advice of anyone you haven't met in person. And investing in cryptocurrency isn't a good idea in any case. Berkshire Hathaway CEO Warren Buffett recently said, quote, Cryptocurrencies have no value and don't produce anything. I don't own any cryptocurrency and never will. End quote. Now there's good financial advice from a very smart investor. Keep your money in your own pocket. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzapfel, Cade Young, and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Strike Mike is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB Local News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for cool solutions. Climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending New Volunteer Orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 